frustration and decay. Two words that we find here in uh, Romans 8 in verse uh, 20 and verse 21. Two words that Paul uses to characterize the world as we experience it. I think his choice of words deliberately echoes the, the verdict of the writer of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes when he says futile, futile, utterly futile, everything is futile. The sort of observation that leads the writer of Ecclesiastes to that conclusion is, is this. He says, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is futile. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust all return. You might now be thinking, well, I wish I hadn't come this morning. <laughs> that all sounds rather depressing. And indeed, those themes of futility and death and decay have reverberated through the works of many 20th century artists. Consider this painting by Franz Marc, The Fate of the Animals, painted in 1913. It's been described in these terms. It is a world being torn apart as fire rains down from heaven and trees are pulled out from the earth. Animals shriek in terror, running to escape the inescapable. The most poignant moment is at the centre, where the blue deer throws its head back in one final scream, while the red ray of light cuts through the white of the deer's neck. In this massacre of the innocents, we get a kind of crucifixion scene that expresses an apocalyptic end of the world. Well, often we don't see the world that way. And the reason of that is because we still enjoy so much of God's mercy in so many of the blessings that he does rain down upon our lives in his providence. But the reality is that the world is a place of death and of decay and of dissolution. And sometimes we do see it with brutal clarity. As perhaps with the news of Ebola in West Africa or with all that's happening in the Middle East with the brutality of the Islamic State. And whether or not we are caught up in such dramatic circumstances, the reality is that we all get sick and die. Or just die. After painting this vision of death and dissolution, the artist wrote on the back of the canvas, all being is flaming agony. And many people feel that at times. Perhaps all of us feel that at some point in time. So we shouldn't really be surprised, should we, by the great number of people who seek to deaden the pain with alcohol or with prescription drugs or with illegal narcotics or with pornography. Or they seek meaning in a beautiful house or a beautiful body or a beautiful girlfriend or a beautiful car. Or, or, or seek escape through fantasy life, through the, 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 the lives of celebrities living vicariously through them or, or in the virtual world of the internet. What if the only alternative to those things is the despair that says all being is flaming agony? But the Christian says there is another alternative. The Christian says there is a better alternative. And that is to belong to Christ by faith and to receive from Christ the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is for us the promise of glory beyond this world 
of death and decay. Uh, And that's our theme this morning here in Romans chapter 8. That first of all, that we are led by the Spirit who is the promise of glory. That for Christians, the indwelling Spirit of God is is a promise of, a pledge of, a, a, a guarantee of future eternal glory that is far greater than anything in this world that we might experience that causes us to talk about being, being flaming agony. Why? Well, because, verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Because, verse 15, the Spirit that we've received is a spirit of sonship, causing us to pray to God as Abba Father. And because, verse 16, the Spirit testifies that we are God's children. So Christian people are God's children. He has given us the Spirit who proves that we're God's children, who makes it so, who testifies to that reality. And so, verse 17, if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. It's true, isn't it, that normally in human families... It is the children who inherit the father's estate. So it is in God's family that as God's children we have been promised an inheritance of surpassing glory. Uh, As we shall see that inheritance means living in a gloriously renewed creation with gloriously resurrected bodies living in everlasting life. But before we come to that Paul tells us that there is a Firstly, a connection to be made and a comparison to make. The connection is between ourselves and Christ. You see that in verse 17? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We are co-heirs with Christ. It is his inheritance that we share. It is his by right. It's ours by grace. But if we are to share in his inheritance, then Paul says here that we must follow his path. His way was first suffering, the suffering of the cross, and only then the glory. There's an order there, there's a time frame, there's a sequence of suffering and then glory. That was the experience of Christ and Paul is saying that will need to be our experience. But did the suffering of Christ mean that he was not loved by God? Did the suffering that Christ went through mean that he was a rejected son? No, not at all. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven to rest upon him, and the Father declared from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And the cross that was to follow was not a sign of rejection, it was the route to glory. And in the same way, Paul wants to tell us here in Romans chapter 8 that the suffering that comes our way does not mean that we are separated from the love of God. Far from it. What it means is that the glory is yet to come. There is an order, there is a time frame, there is a sequence. What it means is that we must first walk the way of Christ through suffering. Every Christian must suffer. It's an unbreakable rule of the kingdom. 
Suffering now, glory to come is the inescapable pattern. You cannot live the Christian life without suffering, this chapter tells us. We're to make that connection with Christ, but we're also to make a comparison. And the comparison is there in verse 18. It's the comparison between our present sufferings and future glory. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Just imagine one of those old-fashioned pairs of scales. When, when we got married, uh, which is quite a long time ago now, uh, I insisted that we have the old-fashioned scales. I had just this sort of romantic idea of the old-fashioned scales where you have the little bowl on one side and you have the platform on the other side and you can put the weights on and, and, and you, you weigh your, your stuff that way. I, I, hang, I hung on to that for about 10 years and then finally I gave in to the electronic scales, which are, quite frankly, much easier to use. But, but just imagine that those scales with a balancing beam, uh, and if we put all the weight of suffering on one side, how heavy that seems. And it just weights down that side, but then put on the other side all the glory that is to be revealed in us in the future. Uh, and the weight of suffering flies off uh, as though it's just made of air. That it's not even worth the comparison. It's like saying, which is heavier, a, a mountain or a grain of sand? Oh, yes, the, the suffering at times can feel like a mountain. But in reality, it's a grain of sand compared to the mountain of glory to come. And present suffering might well cause you to doubt God's love for you. It may cause you to doubt that you're his child. It may cause you to doubt that you're led by the Spirit. But when that happens, keep making the connection and the comparison. Make the connection with Christ who suffered, even to the point of going to his death on the cross, and then entered his glory. And make the comparison between our present sufferings and the weight of glory to come. And yet, having said all that, don't be ashamed if the suffering that you are going through or the suffering that comes your way causes you to groan. For we are led by the Spirit who is the promise of glory, but still, our second point this morning is that we groan at present distress. In fact, Paul tells us, doesn't he, in verse 22, that the whole of creation is groaning. He says, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And creation has been groaning for a very long time indeed. Ever since, verse 20, it was subjected to frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, back to the Garden of Eden, back to the time of Adam and Eve, the time when Adam sinned and brought the whole of creation under the curse of God. It was not possible for sinful human beings, for human beings who were rebelling against the word of God, rejecting his word, wanting to be God in place of God. It's not possible for them to continue to live in the paradise that God had created for them. The true purpose of creation 
was to glorify God by being a perfect home for the human beings that he had made in his image. But that purpose was frustrated by the creator himself because of the sin of humanity. And so ever since Genesis chapter 3, creation has been unable to fulfill the purpose for which God created it. That instead of being joyfully subject to man uh, as the God-given ruler of creation, that the whole of creation has been rebelling against man, battling against him. Creation has been making the life of human beings painful and miserable and finally futile. And every exercise in gardening and battling back the weeds is just a little symbol of that. Humanity is in rebellion against God. And humanity living in rebellion against God is condemned to live in a futile, fallen world. Where creation itself is subject to frustration. A world, according to verse 21, that is hopelessly enslaved to decay. Uh, Yet not hopelessly. And so creation itself groans. And it's not surprising that Christians living in such a world groan. That it's not only unbelievers like Franz Mark who painted that painting who groan. No, verse 23, Paul says that we ourselves groan. We groan inwardly. He's not talking about grumbling, he's talking about groaning. We groan inwardly. We groan inwardly not only because of specifically Christian suffering, things like persecution for our faith, but more frequently because of the frustrations and the sufferings which are the common experience of all people. The illness and disability, bereavement and betrayal. That that family dysfunction and, and divorce and other relationship breakdowns and dissatisfaction in our work and and financial hardship and anxiety and and loneliness and so on. Uh, As well as 101 minor frustrations of living in a world that's subject to frustration and enslaved to decay, those things make us groan. Surely we all know what it is to groan inwardly. If you don't, I'd love to meet you. Talk to me afterwards. Don't believe those who tell you that the Christian life should be a life without groaning. Now Paul says here it will be. Yet groaning is not the whole story. It might be the whole story for a person like Franz Mark who can only write across the back of his painting all life is flaming agony, all being. But it's not the whole story for the Christian that because we have within us the spirit of promise, our groaning should be something else, which is a yearning for future glory. That the groaning of these verses is really a yearning. Like for a child as their birthday approaches. My younger son has his birthday in July. I share that with him. 
And uh, as soon as Christmas is over, he's yearning for his birthday. And as soon as his birthday is over, he's yearning for Christmas. And it, often to his parents, it sounds like groaning. But really, he's yearning. How long till my birthday? We used to have to tell him, now he can work it out. And he can tell us in the number of days. You know, he's, it's the groaning of one who cannot wait for the day to arrive, and yet must wait. Because the days won't go any faster. And so here, again, it's creation, first of all, that yearns. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Who are the sons of God? Well, they're Christian people. Have they now been revealed? No. You can't see the difference. I was shopping in Crawley yesterday afternoon. No doubt among the masses of people, some of those people were Christians, but I couldn't tell. I couldn't see the difference between those who are the sons of God and those who are not the sons of God. But there is a day coming, there is the day of Christ's return, when who the sons of God are will be revealed as they share in his glory and in his inheritance. And the whole of creation, we're told here, is waiting eagerly for that day. Why? Because it was subjected in hope, verse 21, that verse, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That when God cursed creation because of humanity's sin, he did so with a plan of salvation already formed, not only a plan to redeem humanity for himself, but a plan to redeem the whole of creation, to lift the curse and to renew the creation. And when will that day of renewal for creation come? When will that day of liberation from bondage to decay come? It will come when the children of God are given their freedom. When they're fully saved. When Christ returns. When they share his glory. When they enter into their inheritance. On that day, creation will be set free. No more curse, no more decay, no more death, no more frustration. And so creation can't wait for that day. It's yearning for the glorious freedom of that day. And in the same way, Christians yearn. Just as... Just as creation, sorry, just as Christians within creation are the pledge of the future freedom for the whole of creation, so the spirit within the Christian is a pledge of future freedom for Christians. And so here Paul says we have the first fruits of the spirit, verse 23. The first fruits is not the whole harvest, is it? Every harvest begins with the first fruits, whether it's the, the corn harvest, you have the first sheaves of corn, they're the first fruits. Or an, uh, an apple harvest, you'll have the first apples that are picked, they're the first fruits of the harvest. They're not the whole crop, they're not the whole harvest, but they are a taste of what is to come. They're a pledge of what is to come. And to have the Spirit now is the pledge of what is to come for us. Not the whole of salvation, and so we yearn for more. So verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. You see, our groaning is really a yearning. 
as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That because we have the Spirit, we yearn for more. We cannot be content with what we have. We groan because we're only half saved. We still have these mortal bodies which are subject to decay and frustration and ultimately death. We yearn for more, the redemption of our bodies. We know that Christ died for our healing and we want to be healed. We want glorious resurrection bodies like that of Christ. And we don't have them now. What we have now is hope. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? That means we don't have freedom from sickness now. We don't have freedom from pain and perplexity. We don't have freedom from suffering now. We we don't have freedom from weariness. We don't have freedom from bereavement. If we had those things now, we wouldn't hope for them. Who hopes for what he already has? But, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So we groan because we're only half saved. We yearn for the fullness of our salvation. We yearn for the full experience of eternal life. But we do not have it now. Rather, we hope. Hope is the state in which the Christian lives. Our lives have a future focus. And for the fulfillment of all that we hope for, we have to wait patiently, says Paul. So let our groaning at present distress become yearning for future glory. Your non-Christian neighbours and friends and family, they groan at present distress. And you will groan. But let the difference be that your groaning is a yearning for future glory. And let them know that. And yet, how weak we are when trial and difficulty come our way. Not just weak physically, but we find ourselves weak spiritually. We think we'll have these great resources to to cope with suffering, then it comes our way and we discover how weak we really are. So it's such a comfort to find at the end of our passage that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That our final point is that we are prayed for by the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. That in the same way as hope sustains us in our suffering, so the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That we are carrying a heavy load, a load that we actually find is too much to bear. And there's one who comes to help. The Spirit of God himself. And in particular, Paul says here in this, the final couple of verses of our passage, that because of our present condition of weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Paul puts his finger on that very issue, that in the midst of our trial and our suffering and our difficulty, we don't even know what to pray for. And how true that is in perplexing situations in those times of suffering. And our problem is that we don't know the specific will of God in every circumstance. A friend is sick. 
So, so do we pray for their recovery? Is that God's will for them? We don't know. An elderly relative is suffering. Do we pray for them to live or pray for them to die? So they might go to glory if they know Christ. Our children are having a hard time at school. Do we pray for them to have an easy time? Or do we pray for them to grow in character through the difficulties? In general, do we do not know whether we should pray for release from our suffering and difficulty? Or do we ask that we might learn and be shaped and grow in faith through suffering and difficulty? We do not know how we ought to pray. And so frequently we find ourselves making our request to God and saying, then if it is in accordance with your will. And yet just to pray, please, Lord, heal Bob if it is your will, seems so weak. What is the answer? Must we, must we diligently search out the specific will of God in every circumstance so that we might know that it's God's purpose to heal Bob or not? Must we wait for some prophetic word before we can pray? No, Paul says, we rely on the Spirit. We do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit does. And so he prays. He intercedes for us that he makes intercession to the Father on our behalf with groans that words cannot express. He doesn't pray with the language of men, which means his prayers are hidden from us. We don't know what the Spirit is praying, but we are assured that the Spirit is praying for us through our difficulties, and that what he prays perfectly matches the will of God. So you see verse 27? He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. It's God the Father who searches our hearts and so it's God the Father who knows the mind of the Spirit. The Father knows precisely what the Spirit intends by his groans and the content of the Spirit's prayer is perfectly in accordance with the will of of the Father. Our failure to understand God's plans and purposes, our limitations, in that places a limit on our prayers. But that does not mean that there is no effective and powerful prayer on our behalf. No. Our weakness in prayer in the midst of suffering is answered perfectly by the Spirit who prays for us. What a comfort it is to know that this morning. What assurance of God's love that is for us. Maybe we knew that we ought to pray to the Father, but did we know that God prays for us? That the Spirit of God within us intercedes with the Father for us? That in the midst of all that makes us groan and yearn so that we do not even know how to pray the very Spirit of God who is for us the promise of glory is also the Spirit who helps us in our weakness by praying for us. There is an intercessor in our hearts who effectively prays to the Father on our behalf throughout all our difficulties and all our uncertainties even as we wait in hope for the glory to come, 
And I think we can be assured that the Spirit will be praying for us that as we groan, that our groaning will be yearning and that we will be helped to wait patiently for the fulfillment of all we hope for in Christ. The Spirit who is in us, if we know Christ, is the promise of glory.